Welcome to another episode of Electable. I'm Deb Chubb, and uh, this podcast is sponsored by the Indiana Women's Action Movement. So today, um, we are really going to dive into some tough stuff, and that is talking about utility regulation in Indiana. And so I am very pleased to have with me Kerwin Olson, Executive Director of Citizen Action Coalition. So um, Kerwin, I hope, um, you know, first you can kind of give us a little background about your organization. Um, I don't think we can uh, overstress the importance of having some idea of how utilities, which are, you know, somewhat monopolies uh, in Indiana and around the country, uh, and how, understanding how they work, uh, because we are all being impacted day to day, uh, you know, paying bills and paying for more costs. And of course, um, enduring the legacy pollution uh, that these um, monopoly utilities um, are creating in Indiana, and then, you know, going on that whole battle to get that stuff cleaned up. Um, so, so let's start, um, Kerwin, if you can give us a little background about your organization, uh, that would be great. Well, hi. Yeah, well, thanks, Deb, uh, for having me again, Kerwin Olson, uh, Executive Director here at CAC. We're a statewide uh, consumer and environmental organization founded back in 1974 by a collection of uh, community groups, senior groups, uh, labor groups, and others who saw the need to give consumers a voice uh, during the energy crisis uh, of the mid-70s when prices were high, supplies were low, but uh, worse off, uh, consumers in Indiana had no voice, had no say in the process. So those folks got together, formed at that time the Citizens Energy Coalition. Shortly, shortly thereafter, we became the Citizens Action Coalition. And some of our first efforts were around the idea of the need to give consumers a voice for the process, because at that time, consumers had no right uh, to complain <laughs> at, the, uh, at, the, at that time, the PSC, now the IURC. And furthermore, those proceedings were closed. Uh, to the public and not transparent to the public. So a couple of CAC's first efforts uh, back in the day, if you will, uh, were sort of kicking down the door at the regulatory commission, giving consumers uh, the right uh, to file complaints, file appeals uh, at the regulatory commission, and also bringing the the uh, the Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission under the, the purview of the open door law to allow those proceedings to be open to public participation. Uh, since that time, we've expanded the uh, statewide organization. We work on both uh, consumer issues, clean energy issues, uh, issues around democracy and environment at the Indiana State House, but we are most well known as being the consumer watchdog, if you will, uh, at the Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission, where we intervene in cases uh, before the commission with uh, uh, an eye primarily on residential customers with a keen eye towards vulnerable populations and low income customers, making sure we do what we can to make sure that bills are affordable. But we also work diligently on uh, increasing investments in, in energy efficiency, in conservation, um, and, uh, and clean energy in Indiana, whether that's wind or solar, basically non uh, fossil fuel resources. So we're the, the wonky uh, regulatory guys that. Uh, uh, are often uh, called the agitators, if you will, over at the Regulatory Commission, making sure that folks are aware uh, what's going on uh, at the Regulatory Commission and also uh, across the street at the Indiana State House as well when it comes to energy and utility policy that impacts uh, both consumers uh, and our environment. Awesome. That is great. And I just, I learned more than I, than I knew. So that's terrific. And so, so I think we should first kind of define some of these agencies, IURC, Am I saying that right? Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission uh, approves all uh, utility 
uh, rate increases. Uh, and I was mistaken. I thought that there was some real legislative oversight uh, over that. Uh, but it, apparently, no, those are all appointed uh, commission members uh, by, uh, by the governor. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, we are one of only three states where uh, those who regulate the monopoly utilities are either not directly elected uh, by the public or uh, vetted through one or both chambers of, uh, of the legislature. Our, our regulatory commissioners uh, serve at the will and pleasure of the governor of the state of Indiana. The legislature plays an incredibly minor role where we have what's known as the Indiana Utility Regulatory Nominating Committee. Um, that include one member from each legislative caucus, so four members, and then three appointees from the governor on this nominating committee, and people uh, file applications. They're vetted by the nominating committee. That nominating committee then sends three names to the governor uh, to choose from uh, for their consideration. Um, so it's a, it's a very fixed process in our view. We generally uh, have a good idea of who the next commissioner is, when we see the list of applicants, uh, if you will, especially when you have a mostly partisan uh, informal committee sending three names uh, to the governor to choose from. And then those commissioners serve at the will and the pleasure of the governor uh, for staggered uh, four-year terms with virtually no oversight uh, from the General Assembly whatsoever. Huge. Well, um, you know, of course now um, we saw that happen now and the, um, you know, Education department now too, which is really frightening. Head, you know, heading down that same path of, uh, you know, no real outside influence. Um, so okay, but it's okay, right? Because we've got the Office of Utility Consumer Counselor. So that's <laughs> sure. the one, right? That's the one that's providing the oversight, right? Well, depends on your perspective. We do have an Office of Utility Consumer Counselor. A little, a little unique uh, across the country. Most states have some sort of public advocate, but that public advocate is usually housed in the attorney general's office, you know, with the attorney general being an elected official, and then the utility sort of oversight department is under the purview of the attorney general. However, in Indiana, we have a unique agency called the Office of Utility Consumer Counselor, and the head of that agency is known as the Indiana Utility Consumer Counselor, who also serves uh, at the will and the pleasure of the governor and is uh, is appointed by the governor as well. Um, so there's there's no oversight necessarily over who the consumer counselor is. Uh, you know, for the most part, the consumer counselor has a tough job as they are somewhat obligated to participate uh, in all cases, if you will, and represent all customers, uh, if you will, by all customers, I mean, residential, commercial, industrial, municipal, uh, you know, with the public interest in mind, however. But again, that's a gubernatorial appointee as well. So effectively, um, you know, the citizens, the ratepayers of Indiana, if you will, really have no elected official that is involved directly in the regulation uh, of our utilities and the setting uh, of utility rates. It's a, it's a fairly, fairly rare across the country for, for that to be the case. So the oversight then really um, is quite partisan, I guess, is an easy way to put it right now. And of course, another um, symptom of this terrible situation we're in with the supermajority and a Republican legislature, as well as a Republican governor, uh, who, who all agree and who all, you know, take big dollars from utilities to, uh, to get their, to have their way with them. So, um, so, so when we, so I guess I'm, you know, I just want to say how 
obviously important an organization like yours is um, in this situation, uh, because there really isn't any other, you know, uh, you know, real oversight that, you know, even though they are charged with trying to protect consumers, right, and um, and to uh, allow only reasonable rate increases. Um, I mean, it doesn't doesn't certainly doesn't feel like that as a consumer. It doesn't feel like we've got uh, any anybody on our side. No, not in the least. You know, the only thing that the statutes, the law speaks to with respect to the makeup of the commission is that no more than three of the five commissioners can be from the same political party as the governor. Um, And that one of the five commissioners has to be an attorney. Uh, Otherwise, uh, just sort of all bets are off as far as who can serve uh, as a regulator in the state of Indiana. And yeah, you know, the idea of a regulatory commission uh, is that it, it is a surrogate to competition. Um, you know, there's a reason that we give monopolies to utility companies, duplicative infrastructure. It's more efficient to have one company running electric lines, one company running water lines, one company running sewer lines, a natural monopoly, if you will. And so we decided a long time ago, you know, that we would give natural monopolies uh, to utilities. And in, in exchange for that, they would be regulated by these regulatory commissions, which the idea being they're a surrogate for competition. We have an uncompetitive market. So the regulators are supposed to be the check and balance, if you will, uh, to, to monopoly abuse, you know, and, and allegedly equally balance the interests of consumers with the interests of utilities. Yet what we have before us in, in Indiana and other states are regulatory commissions that really are dominated by utility influence and whose interests really are protecting the bottom lines and the financial stability and health of the utilities. Um, with sort of, in our view, uh, definitely turning a blind eye uh, to the needs of the everyday ratepayer. Uh, we're starting to have more and more conversations and getting a little more aggressive about the idea of affordability and what affordability means. Because in these proceedings, when you dive into these proceedings before regulatory commissions, you know the utilities are, are, are crying foul, if you will, about confiscatory rates and risk to our credit ratings and needs for cash flow and protecting our investors and our on so on and so on and so on. Yet we never consider sort of the position that consumers are in. Can consumers afford their bills? Are consumers financially healthy? So that's a conversation that CAC has gotten more aggressive on in recent years is taking the idea of affordability seriously um, and, and evaluating and defining what that means and making sure that affordability is a decision point that the commission uh, must consider when granting these rate increases, because what we're seeing now is similar to what CAC saw back when we were first formed, where essential human services um, um, defined as as utility services, heat, light, water, uh, working toilets, uh, is becoming uh, more and more expensive, outpacing uh, inflation and other things, and really becoming a burden on people's quality of life. So we have to start taking this stuff seriously as you know, utilities are walking away with record profits, record earnings, significant dividends to shareholders, even during a pandemic. And nobody is suggesting that we want financially unhealthy uh, utilities and insolvent investors. That's not what we're saying at all. It's not an either or choice, though. We can have financially healthy utilities while at the same time having rates that are affordable for Hoosiers so that we can protect their quality of life and ensure that everybody has continual access to essential human services. Okay, well, two things I have to say about that is, first of all, there is this notion of nonprofit utilities. 
you know, just like there is a notion of nonprofit insurance. Um, but, uh, you know, we just can't seem to like even put that into our realm of understanding that, you know, these people could operate these programs and these services for consumers without the requirement of making a profit. So anyway, that's for another day, I guess. Sure. But, um, and, and my other uh, question is, um, you know, when we talk about, you know, okay, yeah, we got to have the, you know, the companies, the, the for-profit companies represented in this conversation about how much they'll charge. Um, and, you know, it would be great also if consumers were represented. Uh, but it does also strike me that um, we should have somebody who's there to be representing the environment. Um, you know, given the, you know, outsized impact that utilities have on our environment, um, you would think that there would be a voice for the environment in these conversations too. But I guess that, you know, maybe that's in another, in another world. Well, no, I think, you know, Citizens Action Coalition recognized 40 years ago the, the inextricable link between energy uh, and environmental quality. And we've done our best to incorporate both consumer interests as well as environmental interests. And we've seen intervention in certain proceedings uh, from folks like the Sierra Club and Hoosier Environmental Council and others. However, the issue that we have in Indiana is we have incredibly lax policy with respect to clean energy and with respect to environmental concerns around uh, the generation of energy. But we also have a regulatory commission that doesn't view themselves as an environmental regulator. They view themselves solely as an economic regulator. Right, so right. Those, those are not factors that our commission must consider when making their findings and making their determinations because technically they're a creature of statute. They are guided by the powers granted to them or taken from them by the Indiana legislature. And up until now, we don't really have uh, environmental, public health, carbon, those type of things as things that a commission must consider when deciding whether or not to say yes to a utility company for whatever it is they're asking for, unlike other states that require sort of a societal cost test, uh, carbon pricing, uh, environmental goals, carbon reduction goals. I mean, even states like North Carolina now have statewide carbon reduction goals and plans, and we're, we're sorely lacking uh, in Indiana. And I think we're starting to see the results of that by not getting the, uh, the economic development in the state that we'd like to see because of our sort of lack of sound uh, sustainability policy, as well as other things that we have issues with in Indiana as right. well. Well, that's good to know. But I think, um, yeah, I think um, the gist of all that, that really is the determining uh, factor is the fact that it's not in the statute. It's not part of their goal. Um, you know, as we've done a lot of environmental work and run into that in many agencies, uh, that they're, they're charged just with managing water quantity, not water right. quality. Right. And, <laughs> what know, we see and, the IUR and so they won't talk to us about water quality. <laughs> right. And what we see in the IORC, when a utility goes in to recover costs for an environmental compliance project, and recover that money from customers, really the only questions the commission asks are, do you have your permits? Have you applied for your permits? Well, then we're good. That's sort of it. Have you applied for, have you received your permits? You're gonna get your permits. Uh, and they, they, they see themselves as sort of only managing the money, uh, if you will, and not managing the emissions and the waste and the life cycle fuel stream of that, uh, whatever it is generation source that they're seeking. Okay, well, so the other kind of structural um, part of this conversation that I wanted to talk about is really the integrated resource plan. Um, and so 
you know, so I, I saw on your website that every three years, these utilities have to produce this plan, and it's an opportunity uh, for the public to have input. And, and I've never done it. I've never seen one, and I'm not sure, you know, what they include. So can you tell me more about it? Sure. Well, the integrated resource planning is an incredibly important process that uh, really just became a thing in Indiana about 10 years ago, uh, sort of the culmination of the Edwardsport fiasco, if you will, uh, sort of how in the world did the state of Indiana approve this, you know, devastatingly expensive boondoggle that probably never should have been approved in the first place. Well, part of why that got done was because of a lack of sort of a requirement on behalf of the, on the utilities to do proper long-term planning that was connected with regulatory approvals. You know, so what we now have is we're getting better and we're getting much better in the state of Indiana with respect to the integrated resource planning process because it requires that the utilities take a 20-year look uh, into the future um, about how they are going to serve their customers. It's a, it's a fairly robust process that requires them to do sort of economic forecasting uh, because that's important around what is our load going to be? How much energy are we going to be selling in 2025, 2030, 2035? What's population growth going to be? What's economic development growth going to be? So they have to look at the forecast for sales, uh, where those sales are, what, what customer classes, residential, commercial, municipal, uh, transportation, uh, industrial, uh, take, a, take a long look. We, over the next 20 years, we're going to have this much load to serve. Here are current resources. We're going to need X amount of megawatts in the future to serve. And they put this plan together that says, this is how we're going to serve our customers for the next 20 years, understanding that that gets revamped every three years. So the long-term planning process is critically important, but so is the short-term, that three to five years. This is what we're going to do in the next three to five years with respect to this long-term plan. And then we'll take another look in, you know, 2025 after we file our, our 2022 plan. So it's an incredibly important process. And uh, it, it's, it's all interconnected with respect to regulatory approvals, because if a utility goes in to file for approval for a new power plant or a new solar farm or energy efficiency programs or whatever the case may be, that filing must be consistent with their integrated resource plan. Meaning you can't file an IRP that says, we're good, we don't need any power for the next five years. And then a year later, file for a large gas plant. That's not gonna fly anymore. So that's why we've gotten better uh, with respect to planning that uh, we have the utilities taking this process more seriously and we're getting better at allowing public participation in that process, whether it's groups like Citizens Action Coalition and Sierra Club and NAACP or the industrial customers or the commercial customers. We've seen some cities and towns uh, get engaged and it's always wonderful to see just the individual ratepayer uh, show up to an IRP meeting and ask questions and learn about the process. So we have five large investor-owned utilities in the States, some in, in Indiana, some do it better than others. Uh, we fight a lot harder with others who Duke just finished their IRP process, and we were highly critical uh, of their process as we felt it was largely uh, lots of black boxes uh, in their modeling, if you will, information that we couldn't see. You can't really evaluate uh, in a meaningful way a utility's modeling process if you can't see the inputs, if you don't understand sort of what's going in. And so utilities are able to sort of manipulate 
the outcome, a predetermined outcome. Let's fix the modeling on the front end so we get the result at the back end that we want, which is usually building large gas plants, keeping coal plants option open. The most expensive option is what the utilities want to choose. Why is that? Because it's, it's uh, cost-based rate making where the more money they spend, the more money they make, which is another huge problem in the state of Indiana. We reward utility companies for spending other people's money. That's why bills continue to go up. So we have a lot of work to do in Indiana with making this process more transparent and, and, and making taking regulatory reform seriously because we are really losing our affordability edge in Indiana if we haven't lost it already uh, when it comes to the cost of energy uh, hitting consumers' pocketbooks every day. And that includes small customers all the way up to the big steel mills and others that have seen dramatic increases in prices of electricity in the state of Indiana for a very long time. So a little bit more about the process of that IRP. Um, I said every three years. So, but it sounds like the, the utilities are staggered. They're not, doesn't all happen. All the utilities don't do it all in the same year. Is that right? Correct. Correct. It's, we usually have two or three ongoing IRP processes. We have, you know, the five big electric utilities, NIPSCO, Indiana, Michigan Power, AES, Indiana here in Indianapolis, Duke Energy, and then Centerpoint uh, down in uh, Evansville, Southwest Indiana. So we have those five investor-owned utilities that usually we're at some point in one or two of those processes sort of at all times. It gets a little challenging for groups like CAC when we have too many of them in at the same time. It takes time. It takes resources. It takes experts to sort of meaningfully engage in these processes. So the public always starts five miles behind uh, because we simply don't have the resources uh, you know, to keep up with these guys. But yeah, it's a staggered, a staggered, that was the idea initially to stagger three, one year to the next sort of, but utilities have filed for extensions and schedules have changed. So um, we frequently have utilities sort of overlap. That's a little burdensome, um, but generally speaking, yeah, that's, that's how it so works. So who's up this year? Well, right now we just had uh, Duke Energy and Indiana, Duke Energy just filed their IRP. Uh, NIPSCO just filed their IRP. So that um, means they're done, right? There's no they're more. They're done for now. They're done okay. for now. They'll come back in another three years. NIPSCO filed their IRP last November. So their next IRP would not be due until 2025. Uh, we have AES here in Indianapolis who just started their process and they'll be filing an IRP uh, in November. And then we have, trying to keep track of all these folks. I, then we yeah. have Centerpoint who will be filing their IRP next May, meaning they're going to start their process sometime in July or August. So like so, I said, you know, I've yeah. been, you know, pretty darn involved uh, in these sorts of issues. And yet I have never gotten anything that says, hey, come on over and look at look at our IRP and tell me what you think. Like, where does, you know, where does the regular people see that? Well, and how do they ex access that process? That is exactly why we put that information on our website. We heard a lot of comments just like the comment you just made. So we created an IRP page on our website to try to help steer people to those meetings. Hey, uh, we're now sending out blast emails, registration now for AES Indiana's second IRP meeting here. Some local media outlets do do sort of coverage. NIPSCO to meet next uh, Wednesday at Fair Oaks Farm for NIPSCO stakeholder meeting. So it's a matter of getting plugged in. There are people can go to our website at, at citact.org. We have a page on our current campaigns about integrated resource plans that have all five 
investor-owned utilities. You can click on that utility and it will show you who you need to email to get on the list for that utility. Each utility has an IRP distribution list where they will, you'll, once you're on the list, you're on the list and you'll get updates about meetings and filings and the IURC as well, the regulatory commission also has an IRP page and an IRP distribution list that you can add your name to, uh, to get on their distribution list. But if you'll indulge me for a moment, this is part of the problem with Indiana is in other states, take North Carolina, for example, we work with a lot of folks in North Carolina because uh, we have a common adversary in Duke Energy. So we know a lot of folks there. Their IRP process, as well as in other states, is run and controlled by the regulatory commission, um, which gives the public much more opportunity for comment and participation. Here in Indiana, we put the utilities completely in control, completely in the driver's seat. It is the utility that schedules the meetings, manages the meetings, controls um, everything. We give enormous, enormous deference to utility companies in Indiana. And the IRP process is a prime example of that, where um, the problems that we have in the integrated resource planning process, the problem you have with getting information about IRP meetings, that's because we're allowing these monopoly utilities to control the process um, and be in, in total uh, the driver's seat for, for everything. So we need more engagement and, and, and from the legislature and the commission. This is stuff the General Assembly needs to be aware of, um, that really these are processes that should be run by state agencies that at least there's a level, somewhat but more of a level playing field uh, between the public and the utilities. When you put the utilities in control, it makes it very, very challenging uh, for stakeholders to meaningfully participate because then we've got to deal directly with the utilities. Um, and we filed a few complaints at the commission in the past saying, we're allowed to do informal discovery, <laughs> for example, in an, in an IRP, not formal, but informal discovery and they can respond or not. Um, and we go round and round with those guys and frequently we'll try to in, engage the commission, but we went fairly public uh, a while back with our frustrations with both Duke Energy and the commission. Um, that how can we meaningfully participate in this process when they're not giving this, us the information, especially when stakeholders like CAC, we sign non-disclosure agreements, all of those NDAs. Uh, so we're privy to that confidential information um, and still have a hard time getting it. And that's because we allow the utilities to control uh, that process. So and um, so you will even have a little more insider advantage than just a regular consumer. So I couldn't uh, go up and ask for, you know, all their financial documents. Um, sure, as long, well, I don't know. That's a good question. I guess I, I could ask, but. Yeah, they're, they're, they try to be generally cooperative, especially with the everyday rate payer. Um, oh. They're very respectful. And if an everyday rate payer were like, hey, we'd like to see this, um, um, they would probably provide that assuming that it's not a, not a confidential document. Hmm. All right, well, that's good to know. Yeah, a lot of that stuff right, is right. presented in cases and in IRPs as sort of as the uh, yeah, as evidence in those cases. So generally that stuff is depending on what it is you want to see. So, all right. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm just, I feel like, you know, are they like putting like the meeting notice in the classifieds or something or, you know, is that what's happening? Because um, I'm surprised that I, you know. I, there's I no know. notice required. That, that's oh. part of the problem. The only requirement is, in the IRP rule uh, at the IURC, the requirement is 
and I may be getting this a little bit wrong, but the requirement is they have to have at least three public meetings. And I think it says two of those three have to be in the utility service territory. Why all three of them don't have to be in the utility service territory, I'm not real sure. Um, but there's some language uh, like that. But they have, the only language is they have to have three stakeholder meetings. It doesn't say they must. Um, you know, to publicize them. They have to post notices on their website. You know, so you really have to. That's why we put up our, our website to say, NIPSCO customers, you want to know about the NIPSCO IRP? Here's the email. AES customers, here's the email, so on and so forth, because it's really, really challenging unless uh, you're on those listservs. And again, we're beginning to, uh, you know, also send out emails sort of about these meetings. So folks can also sign up for CAC emails. And if you're a customer of that utility, you should receive sort of those alerts when a new meeting has been announced and the registration is open. Um, that's another frustrating thing is you've got to register for the meetings. You know, sort of you don't oh, register. Really? You can't just show up. Then you don't get the link. You could probably show up, but they they've been virtual for two years. Um, and I don't know that we're going to go back to in person or not. I can say that the virtual meetings uh, have been very, very well attended, um, unlike some of the in-person meetings. But there were a lot of in-person meetings that I thought were really, really terrific, um, where, you know, there were 70, 80 people in person, but there was also a call in option. And there were 50, 60 people on the phone. And it's really, it's, it's uh, sort of speaks to how sad my life is, I guess. But I get really excited <laughs> when I go to a public hearing and there's 90 people, you know. That is exciting. Care about, that. care about this IRP and their uh, commissioners and the utilities are having to hear from them. And that's, that's a good thing. So while the virtual meetings make, you know, participation easier for a lot, we lose sort of that, that, you know, the, the, the intimacy that comes with that interaction sort of in one-on-one -on -one and, and public, public meetings. And so it's, a, so it's a real meeting. They present the IRP at the meeting? It's a process. You know, their first meeting is usually sort of, this is what an IRP is. Here's a look back at our last IRP. Here's the stuff we're going to be looking at. You know, they have to do things like, um, like I say, their sales forecasts. They have to get their fuel forecast. Uh, Capital and cost. They present that. They present sort of where they're at and what stage. Frequently now, we're we we've been pushing the utilities to do these all source RFPs for new generation because what we've seen in the past have been utilities using sort of placeholder pricing for new solar, for new wind, for gas, for for new gas, new coal that sort of didn't really reflect prices on the ground. So IRPs are improving because now we're having most of those IRPs being somewhat informed by these uh, all-source requests for proposals where they send out a request for proposal for prices on generation and this location, and they get bids back from solar developers, wind developers, gas folks, depending on what it is they're seeking, to inform that IRP with sort of real-time marketplace pricing rather than sort of using generic sort of information from third parties or from EIA that's always proprietary. And, you know, when we have seen it, that ridiculously high prices for solar and wind, ridiculously low prices for coal and gas, again, sort of manipulating sort of the outcome that you want. So. Wow. Wow. All right. Well, that just begs for more participation and more troublemaking. Absolutely. So Let's let's uh, let's hope we go there. Okay, so um, so I want to talk to you now about some specific issues. 
and um, there's two of them that um, I'd like you to talk about. One of them is, you know, the higher fixed um, charges. So um, I get that. I mean, I, um, you know, I try to use less heat, you know, insulate, all that stuff, you know, put on a sweater, all those things to reduce my bill. But then, you know, you do your work and you look at your bill and you're like, oh, yes, yes, my, my gas usage has gone down. But there's this one charge that I don't seem to be able to do anything about. Uh, and it's always the same, no matter how little or how much energy I use. And that includes these weirdo things that I have no idea what they are. And so I'm hoping you can kind of explain this. And, I, and, I, and it sounds like there is currently a movement to increase those charges. Yeah, there's a, you know, there's a movement by utilities uh, to increase monthly fixed charges on customers that, um, you know, allow them to collect a rather large amount upfront, regardless of whether you use one kilowatt hour of electricity or one BTU of gas or a single gallon of water or whatever the case may be, a large fixed charge that they collect from customers um, no matter how much uh, of their product you actually uh, consume. And we're seeing this trend not only in monthly fixed charges, but also in other sort of strategies, such as there's a, there's a growing concept around the idea of a minimum bill. Let's give customers a minimum bill. You know, that minimum bill would include the monthly fixed charge as well as a certain level of usage whether it's 100 kilowatt hours or whatever the case may be. And the issue, and they're doing that for obvious reasons, to protect their income, protect their revenue, yeah, protect exactly. their earnings, um, but also to eliminate uh, sort of the ability of customers to control their energy costs, to control their utility costs. The higher we have fixed charges and fixed fees and minimum bills and all that stuff, then the less control homeowners have over their ability to reduce um their costs. So that's becoming a bigger and bigger problem, not only with electric and gas utilities, but also with water and uh, wastewater utilities who are definitely moving towards sort of a fixed cost sort of, of, of pricing scheme that can be really troubling and, and problematic. By we, In Indiana, we just, for whatever reason, we love to eliminate competition, uh, all competition that we can uh, from these utilities. And one piece of that competition is the ability of customers to control their usage and control their costs. And so when right. we impose this so, burden on, then we, we reduce people's ability to do that. Right. So what is the fixed charge? What are we paying for? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a matter of opinion. You know, from the perspective of oh. consumer advocates like CAC, a fixed charge or a monthly fixed charge or customer fee, as it used to be called, really should be, you know, with electric should be no more than the amount it costs for them to run that little wire into your box at the top of your house or your apartment into your meter, uh, read your meter and send you a bill every month. Everything that's else, time, that's everything else should be- expense. They charge me every month. Right, but there is an expense to that meter, to that line, to making sure they have staff and customer service and sending out billing and collections. So okay. a moderate, you know, minimum customer charge the, to, to pay to be a customer is generally okay. But when I say moderate, we're talking about the days of six, seven, $8 sort of customer charges. Now we're seeing customer charges well in excess of 20 and $30 on the electric and gas side of things. And we're seeing customer charges on water and wastewater for some utilities 
that are exceeding 15, 16, 70 dollars a month. And that's just an extraordinary amount of money uh, for folks to pay, sort of regardless of, of what they use. Utilities argue that these are incredibly capitally capital intensive projects, that pipe is in the ground, whether you put water in or not, that wires on there, whether or not you, you use electricity from it, whatever the case may be. Um, but the reality is these folks are selling energy, selling gas, selling water, and there should be some, some give and take between what's reasonable for customers and what's, what's reasonable for utilities. And the scales are just too tilted in the other direction right now. So, but these are these chargers are also approved by the IURC, right? That's correct. That's correct. And we've we've done a lot of work uh, in cases, you know, when utilities go in and say we want to raise our fixed charge from fifteen to thirty five dollars. You know, both CAC and uh, the OECC, to their credit, have pushed back very very hard on these fixed charges. We hire our own expert economists and accountants and rate making gurus to dive into all of the complicated cost allocations and cost of service studies. And well, NIPSCO says their fixed charge should be $54. Actually, in looking at the evidence in their papers, it should be about six bucks. <laughs> you know, so it sort of depends on the case and what you're looking at. But we do push back very, very hard and say this would be a reasonable customer charge because the fixed cost for fixed charge for utilities is whatever they want it to be. Right. You know, there's no, we've even found emails and other things that they just sort of randomly decided one utility that, hey, let's make our fixed charge whatever that case was, 35 bucks. And then they back into it, you know, with the math, you know, and, and, you know, in a case, it should be supported by the evidence of record. Commission should make a finding based on the evidence of record, not by some random decision made in the boardroom uh, where they told the analysts to sort of back into a, a, a particular number. It should be the other way around. Okay. Okay. Next question. What is the utility receipts tax? Uh, well, it doesn't exist anymore. Oh, um, okay. It was repealed uh, by the Indiana General Assembly uh, and sort of really mischaracterized as some, you know, huge bill savings for customers when the reality is the utility receipts tax, the repeal of the utility receipt tax was an enormous, enormous benefit for the large users, the industrial customers, and uh, the manufacturing customers, and will have little to no impact on residential customers. We're talking nickels and dimes for residential customers, and we're talking about tens of thousand dollars for large industrial users. It was a tax uh, imposed uh, by uh, when governor, when Mitch Daniels was governor, when he was repealing corporate inventory tax and wealth taxes and all those things that were repealed. At the same time, he was increasing other um, regressive taxations like sales tax and textbook fees and utility receipt tax was one of those things adopted at that time that I think it was 1.3% of consumption. And so there's been this utility receipt tax built into customer bills for a very long time that amounted to anywhere from two to $300 million on an annual basis that went into the general fund, just got sort of dumped into the general fund. CAC at times CAC supports the idea of a public purpose charge or a system benefit fund. So we were not opposed uh, to maintaining the utility receipt tax, but we felt that, that that was a tax on utility customers. So that tax collected from electric customers should be used for the benefit of electric customers, from gas customers for the benefit of gas customers. And those public purpose charges or system benefit funds in other states uh, have been the, the vehicle by which 
Uh, efficiency programs for schools and public buildings have been funded. Low income assistance programs have been funded to make bills affordable for senior citizens, disabled and other vulnerable households. The funding has been used for renewable energy projects uh, on schools and municipalities. So uh, we hated to see that tax just sort of disappear when there was an opportunity for Indiana um, to sort of use that for a different purpose. But uh, we didn't fight that hard because the writing was on the wall. Uh, we had a, a supermajority that was looking at sort of getting a win, if you will. We're cutting taxes. We're cutting utility bills. When what they really did was um, cut an enormous amount for the industrial and manufacturing users, uh, and sort of masqueraded that as some sort of benefit to the to the broader public. Um, and the, the will to do so was fairly strong. The industrials manufacturers been working on this uh, for a number of years. But we sort of knew it was inevitable. So. Um, so whereas of, the fixed charges uh, are the same for me as for U.S. Steel. Not at all. No. Oh, whoa. Totally. How does that change? Oh, good. Not at so, all. So they, get, they have to pay more. Uh, correct. Well, it depends on it depends on the rate design of that particular utility. But every every utility uh, company has a, a book of tariffs, if you will, tariffs or rates uh, for a better term. And they have a rate for a residential customer a rate for a small commercial customer, mid-sized commercial customer, large commercial customer, small industrial, a rate for streetlights, a rate for agriculture and farmers. They even have rates for things like pool pumps, um, billboards. Um, so every customer class is billed differently. Generally, residential customers pay a fixed charge and industrial and commercial customers pay what's called a demand charge where they're largely paying to make sure um, that they're paying based on the demand of their, their energy needs, whether it's a steel mill that requires tremendous amounts of electricity at certain hours of the day, or you know th those demand charges are set based on the consumption patterns um, um, of that particular customer class. Huh. So it's a percentage of usage. Right. Well, it varies depending on, on the customer. And that's where intervention and the process at the regulatory commission is so extraordinarily important because guess who is well represented before the Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission? U.S. Steel, uh, Eli Lilly, Subaru, Toyota, Steel Dynamics, all of the big guys, they are lawyered up. Um, and so when that, when that pie is getting sliced, the more lawyers you have, the smaller, the smaller the piece of pie gets, that gets allocated to your customers. And if you're not at the table, like they say, you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Right. Um, you know, so that's why CAC is there to, 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 to speak up on behalf of residential customers, low-income customers, which raises the issue of there's a class of customers that is underrepresented, if not represented at all before the regulatory commission. That's small business. Small business customers or general service customers rarely have a voice at the commission. You've got, you know, CAC with residential customers. You've got all of the lawyers with the industrial customers. You frequently now are seeing Walmart and Sam's Club and Kroger sort of come in on behalf of commercial customers. Many cities get involved on, on sort of behalf of municipalities in general. And then the, the, the people that aren't on the table are small business. Uh, and frequently, you know, stuff gets shifted their way because there's nobody at the table going, hey, wait a minute. You know, what about the mom and pop shop on the corner? Um, and unfortunately, those are the folks that frequently will bear the burden of 
of not being represented in these cases. And it's it's a shame. But, you know, to the OECC's credit, they're, you know, they do their best to be aware of all those things. But, you know, they're getting pressure from from all from all different points. So. All right. Great. OK, so now I want to talk about um, the 2022 legislative session. Oh, so yeah. um, in particular, there were a couple of bills passed one uh, to uh, allow the small modular reactors. Um, and, and as I understand it, um, the, you know, it's a pilot program and the, uh, but the cost will be going straight to the consumer for this kind of experimental uh, you know, uh, new idea. It's a, I mean, they're small nuclear plants, uh, right? Is that right? Allegedly. I mean, sure. Yeah. I mean, that's 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 our issue is, you know, first of all, there's nothing stopping a utility company today in Indiana from filing for approval of one of these things. But they're not filing for approval for any of these stuff. Number one, because it's not ready. It's not commercially available yet. And uh, we'll see whether or not it ever will be. But they're far too expensive, far too risky. And they're not willing to risk their own capital uh, and their investors uh, uh, on their own behalf. So, I just want to clear that up, that there's nothing stopping a utility company today from seeking permission for one of these things. But the commission would never approve it because it's far more expensive than anything that's available um, today. Um, secondly, they again, they don't want to take that risk that's involved in developing, designing, permitting all of these stuff. So the utilities um, needed legislation that shifted all of that risk away from the company away from their shareholders and their investors and onto the back of customers. This bill wasn't about whether or not you support uh, nuclear energy, which CAC certainly does not. But for us, that was not what this bill was about. This bill was sort of about who should bear the risks and the burden of, uh, of these investments and this experimental technology. This was no different. This was the same, same, same statutory language that enabled Edwards for. You know, we passed what's known as construction work in progress or quip for Edwardsport, which allowed Duke Energy to shift that risk and the burden of, of, of this unproven technology under the backs of ratepayers. And now we know what we got out of that deal, an overpriced power plant that uh, never, never should have been approved, far cheaper options available for customers. That's exactly what this is. Edwardsport should have been the poster child for not passing this bill, but instead they completely ignored history failed to ignore history and decided, okay, we have this incredibly risky, uh, unproven technology that Wall Street uh, will not fund and will not finance. It's too risky. So let's shove that risk on the backs of, of customers. And consumer advocates love to say, if it's too risky for Wall Street, why is it okay for Main Street? And that's exactly what this bill was. Nothing more, nothing less. This was a shifting of all of that risk onto the backs of, of customers to protect uh, the industry and to protect the utility companies. It has nothing to do with whether or not you embrace nuclear power or not, and everything to do with who should bear who should bear that risk. And it's a now shame. What, what should we expect to see now? Uh, there is there one particular company who's going to you know use this bill to move forward with this experimental technology or oh, Duke Energy? There's no doubt about it. I mean, the so Lynn Good, their CEO, has indicated their deep and sincere interest in small modular reactors. They just released a carbon reduction plan in North Carolina, which includes the potential for small modular reactors in the 2030s. We just saw that announcement from Purdue in collaboration with Duke Energy, exploring uh, using small modular reactors to power Purdue. There's no question that it's Duke Energy, the primary driver uh, behind that bill, because 
Um, there, there's this new idea of replacing coal plants with small modular reactors. We've got these retiring coal plants, so let's blow up the coal plants and drop in a couple of small modular reactors uh, and everything will be well. Why do they want to do that? They want to do that because they're horribly expensive, capitally intensive projects where they're going to make a lot of money doing that rather than taking the correct path of energy efficiency, wind and solar. So Duke is, is positioned well in the eyes of the nuclear industry by having these coal plants that are soon to be retired, having the infrastructure in place. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we, we fear that Duke Energy will sort of use uh, this false promise of small modular reactors to delay sort of retirements of their power plants, to delay meaningful investments uh, in wind and in solar under the, the false promise, if you will, that SMRs are coming someday. And that was the problem with this bill, uh, is it sort of allows the IURC to begin this rulemaking on small modular reactors and allows utility companies like Duke Energy to file for approval as long as they have a plan to file for a permit at the NRC. Not has a permit from the NRC, just a plan to file for that permit. And that process in and of itself uh, takes years and is incredibly expensive. You could read about Tennessee Valley Authority, TVA's plan where they announced they're going to spend about $300 million just to evaluate whether or not SMRs make sense. So that's the kind of money we're talking about. Hundreds of millions of dollars just to think about it. And that uh, all will all be passed on to the consumer. That's correct. And then yeah. consumer assumes all of those costs, whether or not the power plant ever gets built and delivers any energy. That's what that bill was all about, shifting that risk onto the backs of customers uh, and, and, and away from where it really belongs on investors and the companies themselves. Okay, next item. Carbon capture and sequestration now, uh, you know. All my favorite topic. topics. Oh no, <laughs> this is gonna be bad. So, so, uh, so I mean, I remember, uh, you, know, I, you know, when I was um, the president Save the Dunes for, you know, we worked with the steel industry up here a lot um, and, one of the things I remember coming up kind of casually were these uh, deep injection wells uh -huh. that they had on site where they were just injecting wastewater into it. And, you know, and I was asked, well, where does it go? And uh, nobody knew. Um, so, and they are not, and, and as far as, uh, it's, it's my understanding now, they're still not regulated by Indiana, but only by EPA. You get a permit for one of those deep injection wells from right. EPA, and so Indiana doesn't have any oversight uh, on it, and and uh, and so that was really kind of a crazy mystery to me that these things were happening. And so you know, locally, it felt like we didn't even know where those wells were on their property. No, you know, we didn't know what was going in it. And you know, at the EPA permitting level, you know, it's supposed to be understood that this is kind of you know innocuous uh, materials being you know you know injected down. And who know, you know, into whatever, I don't know, into aquifers and who knows what, where it's going. Um, so anyway, so now is that the same thing that we're talking about here or is this something completely different? Uh, similar, but completely different because what we're talking about is um, potentially billions and billions of tons of uh, supercritical CO2. Uh, Define that. I, I don't know what that is. What is supercritical CO2? Supercritical CO2 means it's, uh, well, I'm not a chemist or a geologist, but it's sort of a gaseous liquid form, sort of takes, takes both a gaseous and liquid form. The CO2 captured from the, the, the flue gas or the smokestack 
of an okay. industrial facility that's compressed becomes this super critical sort of not a gas, not a liquid like a chiclet. Is it gum? Is it candy? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, and they allegedly, you know, will send this thing via pipelines, you know, to injection wells that will then inject it underground into wells, you know, six to nine, 10,000 feet down below. Oh, uh, they have claimed that Indiana is ideal because of our Mount Simon, the sandstone found uh, geological formations. Yet, however, you know, with Edwardsport, they said Knox County was the perfect geology for storing CO2. Well, in the end, they found out the Mount Simon down there was not suitable. We then had this project in West Terre Haute that was exploring storing it on site out in Vigo County. They found out there that the Mount Simon uh, sandstone formation was not suitable. So the two times that we've looked at it, it's not suitable. So how can they continue to sort of say the Mount Simon uh, formation is suitable? So we have grave concerns over the both the transportation and the storage of the supercritical CO2. You can Google uh, CO2 pipeline leak in Mississippi, and you'll get a story about Yazoo County, Mississippi, where we had the first rupture of a CO2 pipeline. CO2 is heavier than air, displaces oxygen, causes asphyxiation, nausea, people pass out. It's a bizarre story if you read about this CO2 pipeline that ruptured, um, and there were people foaming at their mouth behind the wheels of their cars, car engines shut off because there was no oxygen in the air. People passed out, people were hospitalized. Uh, the sheriff described it as it looked like zombies uh, walking around. So this is real world stuff. So there's there's the the, the, the real risk of, of uh, in transportation of those leakage. There's migration underground. Right. We're putting this stuff through our water, through our aquifers. We have no idea over the course of five, 10, 15, 20 years, how far out, how far up will this migrate? We have brine down there that will be pushing out. Where's all this stuff uh, going to go over time? They have model simulations, of course, that where they, you know, uh, take a look at simulations that of what it will look like over 5, 10, 15, 20 years. I've seen model simulate that shows these plumes stretching 20, 30, 35 sort of square miles uh, over the course of time. So we're very concerned about the environmental implications of uh, the transportation and long-term storage sequestration of supercritical CO2 itself. But we're also very disturbed by the notion of CO2 because who is out there promoting CCS as a solution? Shell, Exxon, Mobil, BP, all of the fossil fuel interests whose interests are the continued extraction, burning, and consumption of fossil fuels. They are the ones promoting CCS because they want to save their business models. Uh, they want to save uh, what they're doing and continue to make money. So everybody should be highly skeptical of CCS as being any sort of meaningful climate solution when the very people proposing uh, the CCS solution are the very people responsible for creating the problem in the first place. So this bill allows any industry to begin uh, constructing these uh, CCS operations? This bill creates the regulatory framework if you will, for both uh, the, the installation and maintenance and placement of pipelines uh, for CO2, whether you're capturing it, putting in a pipeline, sending it to somebody else, it, creates, it created the framework for uh, what that looks like. Uh, and then it also created the framework for what it looks like to be a storage operator of a, of a CO2 
uh, sort okay. of system and the relationship between D and R. But again, similar to these hazardous disposal wells that you talked about, it's all guided by the EPA and the federal government. You know, it, although the whole statute around being a storage operator for CO2 um, is rooted in having an EPA class six permit, um, which there's very few in existence today. It's a very expensive, uh, arduous sort of process to get a class six permit. So despite sort of this law around creating the ability of to be a CO2 storage operator in Indiana, you still obviously need to be uh, a recipient of an EPA class six permit uh, from the federal government. So unless and until you have secured that class six permit, you can't do anything uh, in the state of Indiana. So what's the point of that bill? I mean, uh, if you have to, I mean, I'm sure that EPA has their own rules promulgated for operation of this kind of process. Why did Indiana even need this bill? The point of that bill is, again, risk shifting, liability shifting. Um, that bill will, number one, allows eminent domain um, for pipeline installations and those type of things. It dealt with the issues of poor space ownership because there's lots of pushback, especially from the Farm Bureau and property owners around the rights of poor space. You're talking about injecting into poor space where below your, below your property is yours, whether there's oil, gas, coal, nickel, gold, silver, whatever the case may be. So it sort of defined what that relationship looked like with respect to property rights, with respect to poor space, ownership, mineral rights, all those sorts of things. But it also went a step further by, you know, um, talking about the long-term liability of the storage of that CO2, which is transferred to the state of Indiana, AKA taxpayers. Um, once a well is closed, and the operator displays that it's closed, well, then the state of Indiana assumes the long-term liability associated with whatever consequences may come from that storage. So there are lots of issues involved. It's not as, it's not as easy as there's lots of things you need to be in, you need to consider when you talk about uh, CCS, not the least of which property rights, mineral rights, and liability, and people's rights to sue um, for harm being done to them person, property, animals as a result of the storage. So they needed some sort of regulatory framework um, that protected industry and that exposed sort of the public and taxpayers um, to, to these long-term risks. Okay. I'm getting really depressed. So uh, that's okay. I mean, you know, that's all right. It's just uh, another fight. So we are like almost out of time, but I just want to uh, quickly, if you have any um, good, you know, ideas about, um, the 2023 legislative session, you know, what do you see coming down the pike? Well, I think what we see coming down the pike is we're going to have to be in a defensive crouch once again. Um, you know, there's there's heavy, heavy pressure and lobbying and influencing being done by the fossil fuel interests, uh, both the coal interest uh, and the gas interest, because we are in Indiana sort of the ground zero, the crossroads, if you will, for the clean energy transition. So there is an enormous amount of activity at the Indiana State House by folks who want to delay and obstruct the transition to clean energy, those being the coal and gas interests. And so we're expecting uh, to have to revisit sort of some coal bailout language, maybe some incentive language around gas plants. Um, and But at the same time, we will also be working hard to advance good policies such as community solar, 
better policies around energy efficiency, better policies around protecting uh, consumers. But we fear uh, there's there's a you know the super majority has an aversion uh, to some strange reason to sort of clean energy, and they have this very romantic relationship with big power plants, baseload power plants with smokestacks that are quote unquote reliable. Reliable is the, the key buzzword down there. When they say reliable, they're talking coal, gas, and nukes, and they're, they're not talking wind and solar. So we're expecting another, another, another fight, if you will, about what the future of energy looks like in Indiana. What, what's been interesting though, is the utilities are sort of in the middle. Um, the utilities are the one doing the transition. The utilities are the ones retiring coal plants, buying wind, <laughs> buying solar. So it's been very interesting at the state house where uh, the uh, the utilities are uh, finding themselves in a unique position of, you know, having their foot in sort of all of these camps. Um, so it, it'll be it'll be interesting. But I would let folks know to be prepared for sort of another knockdown, drag them out, if you will, over clean energy versus fossil fuels. Well, this is a great uh, great prep for uh, for the next session, and um, uh, I hope we can encourage people to you know you know get your back and uh, go go in there uh, with you and uh, and bring some bring some crowds. So um, so tell us again a little bit about you know how we can get in touch with you. You you said your website before, and I, I didn't even really catch it. It's it's www.citact.org. SIDAC.org. You can also find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram. I think we're even on Pinterest as far as I know. Oh, wow. I never go to Pinterest myself, but. How about uh, TikTok? Are you on TikTok? Instagram, our website, we've got a a link on there or a place on there to uh, uh, sign up for our email alerts. Uh, We've got a, uh, people are so kind. There's a a button on there to to donate. You know, we're citizens funded. So even five bucks uh, goes a long way, but check out our website, find out, uh, uh, sign up for our emails, check us out on Facebook and Twitter and, and follow along. And we do our best to, to keep folks uh, in, as informed uh, uh, as we can on what they need to be aware of and what's going on downtown. Man, okay, these are tough topics. It's just so complicated. Indeed. So, uh, yeah, so, um, and I, I appreciate your really, um, you know, trying to make this uh, understandable <laughs> for, sure. uh, for regular people. That's what, yep. uh, that's, that's what we need. <laughs> Yep. Yeah, and it was a pleasure to uh, talk about this stuff for so long. It's uh, a good opportunity. We sincerely appreciate it. So, well, great, great. Well, I think like diving into the weeds on IRPs. So, yeah. Oof. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Great. Well, thank you again for doing this. It's really wonderful. And I'm sure we'll be back um, with more updates as we get closer to the session and, uh, you know, in the, you know, as 23 session opens up. Great. So, uh, thank you again. Yep. I really appreciate it. Yep. Thank All right. you. Take All care. Right. Bye. Bye.